Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and thank you for joining me for another edition of the Daily Evolver Live. So I'm here with Brett, Brett Walker, as always here in Boulder, Colorado, in my home. Brett's taking care of the tech. It's the first night of daylight savings time, so it's actually light out, and that's kind of nice. And it's a beautiful night here, and I hope you're having a beautiful time wherever you are listening to this. And I hope you will join in if you're so inclined. As always, we talk about an integral view of what's happening in basically current events, whether it's news, we've been talking about the Ukraine or the economy or culture or big social movements, that sort of thing. And then we also use these current events as a way of understanding integral theory. So that's sort of the um, circular kind of uh, um, mission that we're on in the Daily Evolver. Tonight, I want to look at two different main stories. I want to look at some of the downsides of modernity. And I've been um, criticized for not really pointing that out much. And I, I want to do some of that tonight. And I also want to take a look at the Pew poll research that has come out in the last week, a big study on the millennials, the millennial generation being the generation born after 1980 or the people that are in their 20s, actually 18 to 33 is the millennials. These are the future. These are the people who are coming up. And every generation is a little bit different than the previous one. And this is one of the ways of looking at cultural evolution. And so I want to look at that tonight. And I want to take a poll to start out to just see who we are on this call tonight. And we'll check on, this, this poll, on the results a little bit later. But using your keypad, I want you to just identify yourself. If you are yourself a millennial, that is born after 1980, press 1. If you're part of Generation X, which is born between 1965 and 1980, press 2. If you're a baby boomer, that is born between 1946 and 1964, press 3. If you're part of the silent generation, you may not have known that that's what you're referred to as, but the silent generation is born between 1928 and 1945, and I know some of you, are not, you're actually not so silent, but nevertheless, press 4 if you're born between 1928 and 1945. And then the greatest generation, uh, the people who won World War II and really set our course on modernity, and these are the folks who are born before 1928. And if you're in that cohort, press 5. And we'll take a look at this later on in the call. All right. As I said, I want to take a look at some of the major themes of cultural evolution and how, as I often point out, evolution is beautiful. And I'm talking cultural evolution, consciousness evolution, that is individual consciousness evolution, uh, evolution in the exteriors, that is evolution of systems and economies and societies and so forth, are beautiful and in that we can see that we are moving towards greater complexity greater goodness, truth, and beauty um, in the large view, but that's often hard to see in the short term. As I often say, like evolution is beautiful, but not pretty. And so just as a child grows up and grows out of, you know, the magical child where, you know, you believe in fairies and Santa Claus and the Easter bunny, and there's a certain beauty and charm in that, and you have to lose that in order to grow further. And it's hard to see that a surly teenager might be evolution, more evolutionarily developed uh, than a, a happy-go-lucky 9- or 10-year-old or 12-year-old. But this is the nature of evolution, is that there's just sort of new problems emerge, but there's uh, a, lot new, a lot of new structures and complexity that, that take us further. As I said earlier in the call, I'm often criticized for overemphasizing the upside of modernity, modernity being the stage of consciousness. And again, I, I, let me just um, point out, I, I often do in these calls, that if you're new to Integral or if you'd like to have some of the charts that help you understand what I'm talking about, such as the charts of the altitudes of development or the quadrants, which I also often refer to, uh, go to the reminder email 
that you got from Maestro. And near the bottom of the email is a link that will take you to a couple charts that you can look at uh, if that helps. And if not, just uh, do your best to follow. And I know most of you know um, what I'm talking about and are quite well versed in this. So I want to play actually a, one of the questions. Uh, it was actually the very first question that I got on a new device that we put on our website, thedailyevolver.com, and that is a voicemail, a tab. It's also on Facebook uh, under SpeakPipe, under the Daily Evolver Facebook page. Brett, why don't you play the uh, question from David in Australia? Hi, Jeff. Um, first of all, I want to just share my love and um, thankfulness and gratitude for the many years now that I've been listening to your discussions and I've learned much and um, and a lot more has come into clarity. So first of all, thank you for that. My only criticisms would be that sometimes your discussions and your perspective can be maybe a little bit too USA-centric and a little bit too much of... Um, um, believing in the evolutionary goodness of Orange. What he was saying, that the podcast tends to be a little bit USA-centric. I appreciate that criticism, and we'll try to um, take that into account, because I know about a third of the listeners are not Americans. The second part of his question where he said, I believe that you believe too much in the evolutionary goodness of Orange without sufficiently taking into account what's not so good about Orange. And there was another comment that was left on Integral Life. And of course, Integral Life runs the Daily Evolver podcasts weekly as well. It was by Scott in Alberta, Canada, who recommended a book that a lot of integralists have read, The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein. And so I, I want to look at actually The Shock Doctrine and use that book as a way of looking at the critique of orange, uh, particularly the green critique of orange. And as we know, every stage of development critiques the previous stage, and then they also create their own problems. Green's critique of orange is very good. What green sees, what postmodernity sees about orange or modernity is that Orange is built around the gospel of growth, that we must get more, that we must get wealthier, that we must have more land, that we must have more education, more travel, more clothes, more everything. And what green gets is that there's a limit to growth. And we, for the first time, actually, in human history, can see the ramifications on growth on the whole finite system of the planet Earth. And that is a very, very significant achievement for humanity to be able to become what we call world-centric. This is the nature of consciousness as we move into post-modernity or the green altitude of consciousness. We begin to see the limits. And so we move from the growth mentality of orange to the sustainability mentality of green. And the shock doctrine is about how orange, in its most unbridled way, modernity, unfettered by any kind of government control, which of course there's an ideology around that. This is uh, libertarianism, is a basic word for it. There's a lot of different flavors of libertarianism. But that this ideology of complete laissez-faire capitalism is very dangerous and it comes from, the, mainly stems from the ideology put forth by the Chicago School of Economics, which was founded by Frederick Hayek with his book, The Road to Serfdom, which warned against government control of the economy and was popularized by Milton Friedman, who was a devotee of Ayn Rand. Of course, that lineage continues with Paul Ryan in the United States Congress, Ways and Means uh, com Committee Chairman in the House, and also Rand Paul, who is the leading, currently, I guess you could say, certainly one of the leading candidates for the Republican nomination for president in 2016. 
he just won the straw poll, uh, the informal poll at the uh, APAC convention, which is the Convention of Conservatives in Washington, D.C. And he's coming up through, through this lineage as well. So what Naomi Klein says in The Shock Doctrine is that, and I'll just quote from her. She says, this book is a challenge to the central and most cherished claim in the official story, that the triumph of deregulated capitalism has been born of freedom, that unfettered free markets go hand in hand with democracy. Instead, I will show that this fundamentalist form of capitalism has consistently been midwifed by the most brutal forms of coercion, inflicted on the collective body politic, as well as countless individual bodies. The history of the contemporary free market, better understood as the rise of corporatism, was written in shocks. And she's talking about whenever there's a shock to the system, particularly something like a natural disaster, a hurricane, a fire, a flood, or a war, or an economic collapse, when there's any kind of a crisis in the system, then that is the, the cue for modernists, for, for capitalists to come in and you know, basically take over and build a new world in their image. So she goes on, she says, I am writing a book about shock, about how countries are shocked by wars, terror attacks, coup d'etats, natural disasters, and then how they are shocked again by, by corporations and politicians who exploit the fear and disorientation of this first shock to push through economic shock therapy. So the first story she tells is the story of Katrina, the hurricane in New Orleans that happened about, uh, I guess, just coming up on 10 years ago. And she talks about how Milton Friedman, who, of course, is, the, as she says, the grand guru of the movement for unfettered capitalism. He's part of the Chicago School of Economics. The man credited with writing the rule book for the contemporary hypermobile global economy. At this point, he is 93 years old and in failing health. This is, he's since died, I believe. Uh, uh, but this is when he was writing about Katrina. Uncle Milty, she says, as he was known to his followers, nonetheless found the strength at 93 to write an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal three months after the levees broke. And she quotes him as saying, this is Milton Freeman saying, most New Orleans schools are in ruins, Friedman observed, as are the homes of the children who have attended them. The children are now scattered all over the country. This is a tragedy. It is also an opportunity to radically reform the education system. And then she goes on to say, Friedman's radical idea was that instead of spending a portion of the billions of dollars in reconstruction money on rebuilding and improving New Orleans' existing public school system, the government should provide families with vouchers, which they could spend at private institutions. Many run at a profit that would be subsidized by the state. It was crucial, Friedman wrote, that this fundamental change not be a stopgap, but rather a, quote, permanent reform. And that's happened. And she goes on to write that, talks about how New Orleans basically turned over 95% of the school students at this point to what, this is a nation charter school movement. And currently, nine out of 10 students in New Orleans area go to charter schools. It's the highest percentage of anybody in the country. The next highest percentage is like 50%, 40% in cities like Detroit, Washington, D.C. So it's a big experiment. And Milton Freeman got his way. That is what happened. And she goes on to write, uh, I think oblivious to the positive case she's making in this case, but she goes on to write that in the Reconstruction, in sharp contrast to the glacial pace with which the levees were repaired, and the electricity grid was brought back online, the auctioning off of New Orleans school system took place with military speed and precision. Within 19 months, with most of the city's poor residents still in exile, New Orleans public school system had been almost completely replaced by privately run charter schools. 
And that is indeed what happened. So that's the shock doctrine. A hurricane comes in and wreaks havoc on the system, in this case the school system, as she points out, also the, the electricity grid, also the levees. And the school systems are privatized. They, as she said, with military precision, come back online with these charter schools, and that's what's been happening ever since. So how'd that go? We have almost 10 years under our belts. And so there's an article last week, major article in the Christian Science Monitor, which is a very moderate, middle-of-the-road newspaper. And the headline was, New Orleans goes all in on charter schools. Is it showing the way? And the copy goes on to say, nine in 10 students attend charter schools in New Orleans, which sought to transform failing public schools after Hurricane Katrina. No other U.S. city has gone so far down the charter path. Here's a look at the results so far. Test scores and graduation rates have climbed steadily. And while there are fewer public school students than before the storm, uh, down uh, to 43,000 from 65,000, the demographics are similar. 90% are African American, actually a slightly higher percentage are low income, 82%. And resources have grown from $11,000 per student statewide to $13,000 per student statewide. With 9 out of 10 students here in New Orleans attending charters, national policymakers are watching the New Orleans experiment closely. They're looking for lessons from both its successes and its stumbles as more urban districts seek significant growth in the share of students who are opting for charter schools. And the article goes on to talk about how, again, in Detroit, 51% attend charters, in D.C., 43%. Uh, there are states, Kansas City, Missouri, whole school system are considering a, basically a New Orleans-style takeover. So it hasn't necessarily been such a bad thing for New Orleans. And this is, I think, the Achilles heel, in a certain way, of Naomi Klein's argument. She has a sense, and this is, again, the green critique of orange, because green hates orange. Integral doesn't hate orange. Integral sees the value of orange. Uh, integral sees the value of green. <laughs> uh, but what Naomi Klein says, basically, is that, well, she paints the uh, modernists as, as being evil. As, as she says, their desire for godlike powers of total creation is precisely why free market ideologues are so drawn to crises and disasters. Non-apocalyptic reality is simply not hospitable to their ambitions. And I don't know about that. I think that what happens is when the hurricane comes and blows something away, human beings want to build it up better. They actually do want to use the crisis as an opportunity to move forward. It's like Rahm Emanuel said, uh, during the meltdown of 2008 and during the first year of the Obama administration when he was talking about stimulus and Obamacare, indeed. And he said that no crisis should go unwasted. This is just good management. And I don't think that it uh, actually holds up to necessarily paint malevolent motives on modernists coming in and rebuilding after a traditional society has been shocked in some ways. She goes on to talk about, well, there's a number of examples that she uses in her book. She talks about the Russian oligarchs and how after the fall of the Iron Curtain and after the breakup of the Soviet Union, that this was an opportunity for the Russian uh, oligarchs to come in uh, and privatize everything and, and take over. And it, here's, you know, where she's right. It, it's true. Uh, we know we've been talking about the situation in the Ukraine and we've been talking about Putin. And he is indeed created a very corrupt system that has kicked off tens of billions of dollars for him. His own personal wealth is estimated at somewhere between 40 and 50 billion dollars. It's amazing. And for his comrades, you know, in, uh, that run various industries and are loyal to him and so forth. And yet, at the same time, the economy of Russia has grown under Putin, 
And Putin is very, very popular by any standards in Russia. He's very popular. I just got some statistics because I, I really just wanted to look at this myself. In terms of the military intervention in Ukraine, which of course has been roundly criticized and bemoaned by everybody throughout the world, two out of three Russians, 69% of those interviewed, said they backed Putin's actions. He has currently a 68% approval rating, almost as high as after his inauguration in 2012. Just 30% of Russians say they disapprove of Putin's actions, down from 34% last year. Uh, in contrast, Obama's ratings are somewhere around currently 42%. The statistics goes on. This is from Alexei Levinson, who's a senior researcher at Levada, uh, which is the polling company. And as he puts it, he says, Putin successfully exploits the habits of paternalism. Russians have confidence in his interpretation of events in Russia and abroad. The images of violence and chaos in the Ukraine featured on Russian state media make people value his, Putin's stability. Putin has never had an approval rating less than 60%. And there's a, a question that they ask regarding the, it's called the index of trust in the presidency in Russia. And that's between 70 and 80% since he took over in 2001. The index of trust in the presidency, 70 to 80%, except strangely enough, for the four years when he wasn't president, and he was the sort of the man behind the scenes, but at that point it dropped as low as 60%. Economic optimism is over 50% in Russia. Here it's 29% uh, in terms of right track, wrong track. 29% of Americans think that we're on the right track. So, you know, we may see that Putin's numbers drop, but they haven't yet. And oftentimes, these kinds of military adventures create more popularity for the leader, particularly when the center of gravity of the country is traditionalist or on our list of the altitudes of development at the amber stage. Now, you could say that Putin is popular because dissent is dangerous for both the media and for organized opposition. That's true, no doubt. We had our interview with our Russian friends a few weeks ago, and they bore that out. Russia has a long history of autocracy. It's nationalistic. It's amber. They're looking, they like a strong man. Amber likes the strong leader. And, of course, strong leaders often have a red streak, too. But amber can tolerate that. Amber can tolerate. They sort of expect that the strong man is going to line his own pockets. And so it's not, so the point I make and the point I want to, that I use to counter Naomi Klein is that it's not like corporatists are coming in and shoving this down people's throats unwillingly. It's that the whole culture is willing to move to a more modernist stage of development because they actually do like the goodies that, that in, in the case of Russia, Vladimir Putin is delivering, which is a growing economy, stability, some rule of law and order. That sort of thing really, really matters as a country or an, uh, you know, uh, a group of people is moving from red to amber. They want that kind of thing. And that's true in America, too. We have our own amber uh, strata of development here. And these are our social conservatives. These are our right-wingers, for the most part. The hawks, the militaristic uh, Americans, you know, the, and also the uh, socially conservatives, they want uh, that strong leader, too. And that's why they, I want to say they hate Obama. And I guess they do. But mainly, they're, Obama scares them. You know, they don't want a leader who's thoughtful, calibrated, careful. Uh, they want somebody who operates from their gut, who knows what he's going to do, who is a little bit ruthless. So they see Obama as feckless. He's missing an opportunity to poke Putin in the eye, to create a better world by actually keeping Putin in a box. And of course, yes, that has to happen by force. But if you look at history, force is how the world works. And so this is the mentality 
of the traditionalist. And that changes as people move into modernity. But Naomi Klein really sees the enemy in a very similar way, that they're malintended in that they're voracious, rapacious, enslavers, that sort of thing. And there's a piece of the truth to that. And if you, if you look at even the development in, in China, uh, Foxconn is a perfect example, and this is often one of the bogeymen of the uh, Naomi Klein type, or green, this critique of modernity, where these companies come into China and they create these huge factories these, where people sit and they do the same task over and over and, you know, how horrible that is and that enslaves people and so forth without really taking into account that a lot of these people, that first of all, there's lines uh, of people who want to work in these kinds of factories because they're well lit, they're, they're clean. These people are coming from the hamlets in China where it's you know, undeveloped, where it's corrupt. These little towns are often run by these mini warlord bureaucrats. Uh, your neighbor can come and bully you. That sort of the rule of law is not strong. There's lice, there's disease, there's ignorance, and people want to move up. They want to get better. And yeah, they're actually willing to work in these kinds of Foxconn factories. There's a certain kind of new pathology that comes online. I mean, there's a pathology of modernity that doesn't exist in pre-modernity in basic alienation in general. The sense of being uprooted from your family, the sense of being uprooted from strong ideologies, this sort of thing can be quite challenging to humans. And so this is the downside of modernity, but it's not being forced on people as much as people are choosing it, as they really just want to move up. As Naomi Klein says at the uh, end of her introduction, she says, I'm not arguing that all forms of market systems are inherently violent. It is eminently possible to have a market-based economy that requires no such brutality and demands no such ideological purity. A free market in consumer products can coexist with free public health care, with public schools, with a large segment of the economy like a national oil company held in state hands. It's equally possible to require corporations to pay decent wages, to respect the rights of workers to form unions, and for governments to tax and redistribute wealth so that sharp inequalities that mark the corporatist state are reduced. Markets need not be fundamentalist. And I, you know, basically agreed with that. I, I you know, I, I'm actually kind of interested in what happens when schools aren't state-owned, where they have their own sort of charters and where they can compete and try different things. I'm kind of cool with that. But what Green wants is actually a beautiful world. You know, they want a world that, where there's uh, equality and and. and the environment is taken into account, and people can't go in and take advantage of other people, that there's more controls around that. I'm, all, I'm for all of that, and I think we're actually working our way into that. And if I look evolutionarily, one of the reasons we're working our way into that is because people like Naomi Klein are writing books like The Shock Doctrine, which point out that, again, pernicious, sort of ignorant growth at any cost, privatization as a fetish, as a hard ideology, that there is a downside to that. So that's my take on that at the moment. And you can see it really all over the world. I was just mentioning China, that the speech by the new president of China, Xi Jinping, if I'm pronouncing it right, and he talked about the problems that China are facing and two of them are right in the bullseye of what we're talking about. One of them is corruption. And that's a real powder keg in China. And the Chinese Communist Party is really nervous about getting their arms around moving people into systems. These, again, these small towns, a billion three people, out of these corrupt systems where, into more bureaucratic systems where people are treated more fairly. 
and that there's a rule of law and, and that the courts are fair and they're not run by thugs and that sort of thing. That's a huge move into modernity. That's a positive move into modernity. And then the other problem that he pointed out as being the most challenging, the, the number one most challenging problem is pollution. And of course, this is emblematic of the downside of an unfettered growth-like uh, economy where the, you know, the public, the commons, are not factored in to the bottom line. The bottom line is strictly financial. And that is early modernity. But as green comes online, the government begins to civilize. This has happened with us, uh, with Teddy Roosevelt, uh, when the oligarchs here were first corralled. It looks like it needs to happen again. And I think it will. So I'm pretty positive about that. Uh, you know, we just continue to work our way into better and better systems of organization. Any comments or questions, of course, at any time, just press 1. If we have time, we can take some questions or comments. Or if there's anything you're just seeing differently or disagreeing with me on, that's cool. It's fun to talk about it. So we took our poll, and we're going to move into looking at some of the research on the new young generation, our 20-somethings. 15% of listeners are millennials. So I'm really interested, if you're so inclined, to speak up. Press 1 and tell us what you're thinking. 12% are Gen X, 43% are baby boomers, that's me, 25% the silent generation, and 5% the greatest generation. So we're pretty well distributed over the map here, with the bulge being in the baby boomers. <laughs> All right, so the story that I wanted to look at was a major Pew poll on the millennials. And again, these are the people who are 18 to 33. I love the headline in the New York Daily News uh, about this study, and it said, no religion, no marriage, no politics, no country, no problem. <laughs> and this is, uh, uh, pretty much sums it up. It's interesting, you know, to see what's next, you know, what the new generation is thinking and, uh, you know, what the prospects are. One of the most dramatic changes in the younger generation is that only 26% of them is married. These are the 18 to 33-year-olds. 26% are married. 36% of Generation X were married at the same age. 48% of the baby boomers were married in their 20s. And 65% of the silent generation were married in their 20s. And so that's a big change. Uh, there are fewer homeowners. There are fewer percentage employed a smaller percentage with driver's license. It's interesting to see, but there seems to be just a natural extension of, I don't want to say childhood, uh, and even adolescence. It's just sort of a new stage of the 20s, which is a stage of experimentation and um, trying new things and not having to lock in on a profession, not having to lock in on a mate. And I think there's something that's actually quite interesting evolutionarily about that. You see it in psychology, but you also see it in astrology, this idea of the Saturn return, that there is a new kind of maturity that comes online for people somewhere between age 27 and 30, you know, right in that area. And we actually know from brain science that there are parts of the actual meat of the brain that are continuing to grow and mature into that stage. And so it's like the younger generation has carved that out as a stage where they can continue to explore. And considering that we're entering a world where the idea of having one career, as my father did for his whole life, he worked for one company for 40-some years, uh, nobody wants to do that. Nobody's going to do that. And also in terms of health and lifespan, people will likely be living to 100 plus, maybe 120 years old, maybe longer, who knows. We've had a couple talks about transhumanism on this show, where we look at ways that people like Ray Kurzweil are talking about uploading our consciousness into robots and machines at some point. I, as you know, don't think that will happen, but 
I think that there is augmentation of the human being that could radically change aging. And when you have that kind of a lifespan ahead of you, you just sort of make decisions accordingly. In terms of politics, 50% independent, 20-somethings, 27% Democratic, 17% Republican. So far less affiliated with political parties than any of the previous generations. Also far less aligned with religion. 30% of them have no alignment with religion. They don't identify with any religion. And that's a huge change in social evolution. What they do have, the 20-somethings, they're the first generation that is what we call digital natives. That is, these are the people who grew up with social media already being online. Now, of course, it's proliferated in the last five years, six, seven years, but it's been there for their whole life. And so they're far more comfortable on it, far more comfortable with networks than with institutions. And I think that's basically right on schedule. Republican and Democrat as institutions, or even you know, one religion over another, this idea of holding on to one ideology and being somehow at odds with the rest is just not appealing to anybody as they develop in terms of the evolution of their consciousness. It's, it becomes less and less interesting to integralists. We're actually become more and more interested in what's the best ideas from each side of the street and how can we put them together. And we see this, I think, most remarkably in young conservatives. Young conservatives who are, they're, they're pro-gun, they're, but they're also pro-marriage. There was an article in, uh, I believe it was USA Today today, that showed that 61% of young Republicans favor same-sex marriage. 61%. That's amazing. And there's a movement in young Republicans, and you saw it at APAC with these younger people at the conservative convention in Washington, D.C., that the younger ones particularly are moving from a republicanism that is more traditionalist, that is amber altitude, uh, more religious, uh, conservative in terms of marriage, conservative in terms of gay marriage, uh, you know, propriety, all of that good stuff. And it's a conservatism that is more orange or more modern, that is libertarian. It comes from that Chicago school, essentially, the Ayn Rand thing. And as I mentioned, the most interesting leader, and he, again, he won the straw poll at the APAC convention, the conservative convention, is Rand Paul. And I think he won with over 50% of the vote. It was a very decisive victory down there. Rand Paul is very interesting. Uh, and that some of his policies, particularly regarding civil liberties and the federal government spying and keeping track of phone calls and everything, he's very much against that. He railed against that in his speech. But he also uh, is very, you know, by any common use of the term, a dove, not a hawk. In fact, I want to read a little bit from his talk. He was uh, going through his subjects, and he got to the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. And he says, regarding Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, this is Rand Paul, there's a little difference among most Republicans on what to do in response. All of us believe we should stand up to Putin's aggression. You kind of have to say that. Virtually no one believes we should intervene militarily. So we are then faced with a finite menu of diplomatic measures to isolate Russia, on most of which we all agree such as sanctions and increased economic pressure. Strangely enough, this is also Obama's policy, but never mind. Yet some politicians have used this time to beat their chests. He's talking about the John McCain's, the Lindsey Graham's, the Hawks, the Dick Cheney's. What we don't need right now is politicians who have never seen war talking tough for the sake of their political careers. America deserves better than that. So do our soldiers. More than any other category of voters, our men and women in uniform understand the anguish that comes with their ninth and 10th tours in battle zones. These brave young patriots do their duty. They do as they're told, but they don't mistake their heroism for love of war. Many agree with General Eisenhower, who said, I hate war as only a soldier who has lived it can, only as one who has seen its brutality, its futility, its stupidity. 
There's a time for military action. Again, this is, continues to be Rand Paul, such as after 9-11. And there's a time for diplomacy and the strategic use of soft power, such as now with Russia. And I think that's really so true, uh, that the soft power of the West, that is liberalism, uh, a growing economy, freedom, dissent, pluralism, uh, environmentalism, all of the stuff that uh, the West has to offer the Ukraine is going to be far more powerful than if you don't stay with us, we're going to cut off your natural gas. That's the thinking of basically a red amber stage of development. And history is very much magnetizing uh, people towards that more modernist view, a more modernist consciousness. And that's why Putin is really fighting a losing battle here. Uh, We'll see how uh, bloody it is. Hopefully not. Hopefully it'll end up in some sort of a, you know, stalemate of some sort or he'll withdraw, which I think is doubtful. We'll see how it goes. But I I, I love that that, that Rand Paul's talking about using the strategic use of soft power. He goes on to say, diplomacy requires resolve, but also thoughtfulness and intelligence. That's something that Ronald Reagan always knew. And of course, you have to quote Ronald Reagan if you're a conservative. But he goes on to say that Reagan said that his greatest regret as president was sending those Marines into Beirut in the first place. That's the Marines. There were several hundred of them got killed by a terrorist bomb there. How many leaders were as great as Reagan, willing to admit their mistakes, learn from them, and put the country before their own reputation and legacy? Today's Republicans should concentrate on establishing their own identities and agendas, as opposed to simply latching on to Ronald Reagan's legacy, or worse, misrepresenting it. So I think that's an interesting move in the Republican Party and the conservative movement, that this Rand Paul with his you know, policies that basically reach all around, all the way around the spectrum and join forces with uh, liberals or Democrats who also favor the use of soft power instead of hard power, no military intervention, and very much turned off by government buying. So it be interesting to see how that continues to evolve. I see we have a couple of questions or comments. So why don't we turn our attention to them and let me welcome you, Nancy. Hello. What Hello. do you have to share? Hi, Nancy. Where are you from? I'm from Canada, from Nova Scotia. Oh, cool. What would you like to share? Um, well, <laughs> you've given us lots of uh, food for thought and lots of fodder. Um, you know, it's very interesting. I, I, I think one of the things that popped up in my mind was the idea that you know, uh, China, you know, is going to come in, and I've been to China, and, and, and I, you know, when I was there, it was maybe 10 years ago, and they were just starting to, you know, come into their modern world, and, um, you know, my concern would be that with the population there that they have, that do we really actually have the luxury of time to let them go through the evolution that we've gone through? when we polluted half the world, and we're still doing that. And right. my concern would be around the whole, you know, evolution of the, the planetary, um, you know, help where I don't, globally, I don't know if we can afford to have everybody, you know, catch up um, <laughs> no, in, no. The sa- in the same way, in the same timeline that we've done. So um, uh, I think, you know, in some ways our new technologies are helpful, and I think in other ways they're definitely not. And I would like to see, you know, things leapfrog a bit faster because I, I think that there are green, greener technologies out there that, that those countries would be able to take advantage of it if, if the West was willing to let them and, um, and could see the benefit in letting them. So the the problem that I have is still a mentality thing where there's this enslavement idea that um, you know or the, 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 the idea that the that we have to keep some people at the top and some people at the bottom and that um, you know there's this crazy mind thinking around not that we're not all in this together. <laughs> yeah. 
No, and that is, I mean, I think you just articulated the view that's really the most progressive view. When we see countries like China, we have still have Africa to go and, 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 and a lot of India and so forth, that these people want to live uh, basically modern lives. They want the homes, they want the kilowatts, they want the calories, they want the goodies, they want to the travel. And you're right, if they go through the same trajectory that we in the West did and burn coal and you know waste and so forth, it's not going to be pretty. And I do think, as you say, the real hope is that they leapfrog and that rather than build a lot of the same infrastructures we built, that there is things like solar and wind and batteries. And there's a lot going on in terms of the technology of energy that I think it'll be a horse race, as Ken often says, as to whether we, you know, we develop before we poison ourselves. But with the president of China coming on and saying that the key problem in China, the two key problems are corruption and pollution, and that you know, they're all in. And this is where, you know, I'm with Naomi Klein a little bit, where she says, you know, just capitalism does not necessarily mean democracy. Uh, and that's actually, in the case of China, a pretty good thing, that we have the elites running the country rather than, you know, the majority of people who are still very, very nationalistic and still have a grudge against Japan and Korea. And, you know, they want to play that whole thing out. And, of course, the government of China will do their best to do a little kabuki to, you know, throw red meat to the masses in terms of these nationalistic agendas. But for the most part, they're going to move the country forward in terms of, you know, as he said, both corruption and pollution. These are big, big moves into modernity. One of the leading developers of, of uh, sustainable energy is China. So let's hope that, again, they get there before we die, <laughs> you know, before we poison ourselves. Okay, uh, I see we have a comment or question from Molly. Molly, you still there? Yeah, I am. Hi, Molly, where are you from? I'm in uh, Novato, California. Great. What do you have to share? Um, the thing that came up for me when you were talking about Putin, which I found that whole discussion that you offered quite fascinating, was that at the time of the American Revolutionary War, George Washington was one of, if not the most wealthy man <laughs> in what was about to become the United States of America. And so it really struck me, even though I, uh, my understanding in Integral is that we consider the French and American revolutions to be the blossoming of the um, of orange. I, I just thought I saw that parallel, and it really struck me. So just yeah. thought I'd mention that and see what your what your take and comment on that was. No, I think that's a really really good observation, and there is a stage of development where the country is still in important ways red. And that is the strong man, that's the warlord model. Uh, that's the oligarch model. That's where the strong man sits at the top of a pyramid and gets the goodies. And yet, they're still able to use science. They're still able to use technology, which are more modern tools. But the, the interiors, the, the, the attitudes are still pre-modern, still red and amber. And that's the stage of development that is, um, you know, we see that happening in Turkey, where Erdogan, the, the, the prime minister there, president there, uh, has brought the country into very significant modernity in terms of uh, the economy and wealth and industrialization and all of that sort of thing, but has also gained all sorts of wealth on its own, has shut down dissent, shut down newspapers, um, intimidated opponents, and plays Big Daddy. That's basically that Big Daddy model. And again, at a certain stage of development, people sort of forgive that. Uh, and I think that's true. I mean, if you look back at the, the founding fathers, as you mentioned, George Washington was one of the wealthiest men in the country, uh, Thomas Jefferson as well. And both of them also, in addition to their uh, you know, great wealth, had slaves. They, they literally built their... Um, wealth on the back of humans that, that they bought and sold. <laughs> you know, these are the guys 
who, in the case of Thomas Jefferson, wrote the Declaration of Independence. It's just one of the great perversities of, of history. And again, why I say that evolution is beautiful, but not pretty. These patterns continue to play themselves out. All right, I see we have just a couple minutes. One more question comment by Tad. And Tad, welcome. Hey, how you doing? Can you hear me? Yes, here you good. Where are you from? Cool. I'm uh, from Chicago, and I'm a millennial that hates other millennials. Um, <laughs> oh, good. Do tell. Yeah. Well, okay. My question uh, is, I have a comment and a question regarding, um, I'm sort of new to Integral, and I wanted to know if what you or maybe Ken thought of the relationship between the internet and emerging, uh, like emerging green or integral consciousness, because uh, yep. my observation as a millennial is that um, I think that the internet in some ways can undermine maybe amber values such as marriage because with the internet, um, the millennials and other people now have um, more potential ways to meet other mates. There's Match.com, OkCupid. So there's more, there's a, a swath of people that you can choose from of potential mates that was never there before. And maybe that's playing into the undermining of traditional value, values like marriage. I just yeah. want to know your thoughts on that. I think that's, you know, I think you're right on. I think there's, I think the um, internet and the, you know, sort of that whole thing uh, does two things. One is good and one is not so good. Uh, in terms of the not so good, one of the things that it does is it provides a sort of an addictive world. For most of human history, human beings, in fact, evolution from through the you know, insects and animal world and mammals and so forth, is a drive for calories, is a drive for mates to, to you know, have sex and to propagate the species and so forth. Now, all of a sudden, you have this selection system where you can literally have sex with a different person every day of the week without a whole lot of trouble. You really can. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, for people who aren't aware of some of these dating apps where they literally tell you who's 100 feet away, who's 1,500 feet away, uh, what they look like, what they're into, where are they available now, who's home, uh, and you get together, and that is, can become very addicting in a bad way, as can porn for both men and women. I think it's more of a problem for men, but the idea of having a sex object, and, and you know, as, as, as they say, you can, have, you can have sex with 200 women in a half hour using porn, uh, and that becomes very addictive. And so that does undermine a lot of blue values. So I, I agree with you. And it also just even splinters attention. I know myself, and I know other people who are in the same boat, it's hard for me to read a book because I'm used to sitting there like one of Skinner's pigeons tapping at my keyboard and getting stimulation with this little picture or that cat video or whatever it might be, <laughs> you know, or even interesting, you know, deep, wonderful things. But in terms of actual you know, sustained concentration, I was better at that 10 years ago than I am now. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. So those sorts of things add up to, you know, something we need to be aware of in terms of the virtual world that continues to expand. The upside is that one of the principles of evolution is that at each stage of development, we are literally able to see more. We're able to take more into account. We're able to be aware of more things. And what's happening with the millennials and what's happening with you know, the virtual world in general is that we are able to be in contact with people around the world. We're able to have friendships that are non-local. We're able to find the needle in the haystack for a person who's interested in some little you know, subcategory that we're interested in or some expert. There are groups forming that are helping with some of the downside. There are addiction support groups that are virtual. I have friends who have been very successful uh, working with their addictions with people online. 
Uh, there's all kinds of uh, questions and answers. There's a whole world of, um, so we could see that we, you know, as, as I often say, my grandparents knew maybe, you know, 50 people. My parents knew maybe 100 people. Millennials know 1,000 people. They're in contact in terms of these networks with a lot more people and a lot more different kinds of people, so people from all over the world. And one of the principles of evolution is to see is to care. And so our idea of who is in my group, my group that is deserving of moral um, consideration, it used to be my clan, and then it was my nation, and now it's the whole world. And this is a good thing. And this is where I think millennials are basically world-centric, and, and children today are world-centric pretty much. Um, they move to world-centric you know, in a pretty easy way. So um, I think that's really interesting, and, and that that's the evolutionary potency of the Internet, is that we just continue to literally become one world. I see we have another millennial, Adam. So let's hear from you, Adam. What would you have to share? Hey, Jeff. Hey, man. I was, I was, um, I was surprised to learn at the beginning of the call that I'm considered a millennial. I thought I would, I thought I was um, Generation Y until now. Oh, okay. What they were calling. What's your age? Gen X. I'm 32, so I'm right under okay. the deadline. You're the cusp. So yeah. yeah, what are you seeing from from 32? Well, you know, um, I just wanted to say I, I totally agree with everything you guys were just saying about the online stuff. And as you were also as you were reading the um, the these study results, um, every single finding that you were pointing out just seemed perfectly uh, natural. None of it was really very surprising to me. I yeah. felt like, oh yeah, of course. Every time you said that and. Um, to me, the way I see it, just from my own perspective and the people I spend my time around, is um, part of the reason for all these declines in institutions um, may be because we've seen our parents, you know, more invested in them than we have. And we've seen it not work out in a lot of cases. Uh, you know, we've seen this this dream and this fantasy of these institutions working perfectly kind of not come true. And, uh, like, you know, for myself, my, my parents were never even together, let alone married. Um, things like right. that and, and home ownership, uh, seems a lot more complicated and, and, um, nobody wants to, um, you know, consider the idea of working at a company for, 40 years anymore because, you know, none of us feel that we can trust any company to take care of us. So, um, yeah, I think it's totally natural to see these institutions in decline, and I wouldn't be surprised if they keep declining even further and as yeah. more generations come through. But I also found it really interesting to hear the things you pointed out that are new emergences and, and because we have this bigger experimentation stage that we will see more new emergences, new institutions. So. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I, I share your view that I wasn't particularly su surprised either. I think a lot of this just feels evolutionarily right on schedule. This idea of moving from these big institutions to, it, it's actually one of the things we talk about in Integral in terms of the lower right quadrant, and so what, what I'm talking about are the systems, eco economies and so forth, is that we move from even national economies to now we have these meshworks of networks of money flow and of culture and of people getting together. And uh, the institutions are just too clunky. They just don't, they're not agile enough. They're too ideological. They're too at odds with each other. And we actually want to be a little more creative. And so, you know, from moving from institutions to networks doesn't seem to me like a bad thing. Networks are far more flexible. And, and it, it, there's another, another point that I failed to mention, and that is that the millennial is the first generation to be less wealthy at their, in their 20s as the stage before them was. 
they're actually more wealthy than the previous stages because there's just more wealth, but they're actually less wealthy, wealthy than the Generation Xers were in their 20s. And yet they're significantly, I forget what the number is, but significantly more optimistic. And that's an interesting little paradox and dichotomy, that millennials are actually quite optimistic, <laughs> and more so than Gen Xers were at the same stage of the game. Uh, so that's, uh, I think, kind of hopeful. All right. So let me just, I see where there's one more. And, and uh, so let's take a final question or comment from Jennifer. Jennifer, welcome. Where are you from? Hi. Hi. It's your friend from Boulder. Oh, hi, Jennifer. <laughs> hi. Um, well, so I was thinking that it's, it's not just uh, because the institutions don't work. It's also because um, we feel more secure without them. Yep. Because we are. We're, nobody's starving. I mean, you know, and um, if they were, we'd be doing unions again. You know, we'd have to start that whole process over. So um, yeah. I don't think it's just a reaction against or, you know, that's maybe sexier, but really it's just they aren't needed anymore, you know. Yeah. And no, I think that's the, right. other, the other thing I, uh, what I heard coming home tonight from work um, this thing on NPR, it was an all, uh, they were calling a bunch of adult historians and smart people um, doing an alternative history imagining um, the 20th century without World War I if the, if the Archduke oh. and his wife had not been shot. And it was fascinating, for one thing, because it was extremely positive and some of it was quite credible, you know. Um, yeah. And, and, I mean, it would have been a very, very different world. Nobody was looking to have a war then, they would, but they had these alliances and they were kind of forced into it by their honor and stuff. And um, it made me think about, you know, the, the differing influence of events versus evolution or, you know, how, I mean, events really do influence evolution or what happens, right? Absolutely. Some, yeah, right on. Some, some of the same stuff would need to happen, the basic evolutionary growth, but um, you know, it could come out extremely differently. And um, the other thing that got me thinking sort of backwards to, um, you know, when I was growing up, you know, a story was a story and it was the same, you know, your mother read you a story, it always ended the same way, and history was in the Encyclopedia Britannica, it didn't change very much, and you learned it, and then my kids, had these choose-your-own-ending books. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then they, they got older and they started reading these young adults and, and, and adult alternative history books. And now they're doing it on NPR. And it just made me realize this multiple perspective thing is just, you know, it goes all the way down. Yeah, no, it's you amazing. Know? No, choose-your-ending books. Who ever heard of such a thing? Yeah. <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah, so, no, that's, anyway. that's really interesting. And even fan fiction. I, I was just reading that there are 350 million words of fan fiction written around the Hunger Games books. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it's really good. People were talking about, there, you know, there's big threads that have become, you know, well-known and well-respected. And, uh, you know, everybody's a creator. They, they mentioned that 55% of millennials actually create content for the Internet. That's amazing. When you consider that in my generation, and particularly our parents' generation, my parents never wrote anything. They maybe write a Christmas card or a letter. I mean, it just, it just wasn't, you know, there were, there were still people in the professions of advertising and people who had to write. But people, once you got out of school, you didn't really create or write much of anything. That's changed. And I noticed another, you, you mentioned the idea of uh, what got people got into these wars. And, you know, the one assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand set off this whole cascade of bad vortexes that led to World War I, which led to World War II, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and that things like honor got people in these wars. There was a militant romanticism at this time. There was still people had this idea that one, the Ottoman Empire or, or the Russian Empire or the West could be ascendant in the world instead of just kind of work it out in these messy sort of competitions that we have now. And that when we're talking about uh, the, one of the, one of the uh, other 
um, statistics around millennials is they're the least patriotic of all the stages at the same, uh, at the same age. Uh, less than 50% of them uh, identify as being patriotic. I think this is good. We don't want this kind of nationalist honor kind of uh, reflex in the system as much as it's been in the past. It gets us in trouble. As people become world-centric, citizens of the world, you know, they're just less reactive to these insults and, you know, posturing that has been the rules of the game for so much of human history. And I think that's a good thing. Less patriotism. Go USA. All right. Thank you for joining us in the Daily Evolver. You can see the write-up on dailyevolver.com and also on Integral Life, which is where I'm hosted. Tell your friends to join in as well. We'll see you next Tuesday night. Bye, folks.